Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson. Hope things are well with you today. It's Monday, the uh, last official week of the month of July. And you know what that means. Next week, football camp starts. We used to call it fall camp. It's not really fall camp. It's preseason camp. Because, you know, you know, it doesn't get fall around here to October. At least it doesn't feel like fall. And even then, it's a relative term. It seems like when we were kids, you know, of course, that's, uh, you know, decades ago for so many of us. But it seemed like, you know, right around Labor Day, things kind of started calming down a little bit temperature-wise. And by the time you got into late September, you know, there's a little wind and the leaves start falling. And now it feels like it's, uh, it's summertime all the way up to, like, uh, November 1st. feels that way. I don't know that I buy into all this climate change stuff. I don't be honest with you but nevertheless we're going to be uh, out there football practice and we have the big uh the cookout you know the summer slam cookout deal we'll do that thursday evening on campus so wednesday we'll give you a bit of a preview of that but uh, last big recruiting date of the off season and we'll get into fall camp and everybody then everybody gets into football mode everybody High school players, high school coaches, college coaches. Sometimes we forget about that as we, you know, I've made a career, you know, covering recruiting for the most part and uh, really how I got my start in the industry. But at the end of the day, as great as recruiting is and as fun as it is to follow, as my wife says, it's a soap opera for men. All that said, it's part of a bigger picture and that's football. And so today we're going to start our uh, first SEC football preview of the year. You know, it's like 40 days now, 40 days until football season's here. So we got it. We got to do 14 teams. I guess really 13 teams because we got Mississippi State in there. And uh, but we'll we'll start with that today. Got a very special top 10 list too. And it's from one of those bands that really only released one album. But it's very special to me. And uh, as part of that segment, we're going to uh, educate. A lot of people, especially you young folks, because many of you have been sold a revisionist history about 90s music, early 90s rock music. And so I'm going to give you the true definitive history of grunge today. If I didn't pique your interest a little bit, maybe perhaps it's your person that uh, doesn't typically listen to the top 10 list. Maybe you uh, fast forward through that. We're going to give a little more time for that segment today. We're going to talk about uh, one of the true pioneers. True pioneers of grunge music but uh, a lot to talk about for sure a lot's happening in college athletics you guys know there's new changes in the rules of of college football you know they're not going to stop the clock after first downs except in the final two minutes of a half not going to have these untimed downs and things like that so you know we keep making these changes and I don't know if they're always for the betterment of the game but you know it's something we're going to deal with and and trust me we'll be two weeks into the season and then there's going to be Joe Blow on Twitter why did they stop the clock after the first down we got screwed there well I mean that's the rule now it's the rule we've all agreed to and speaking of rules there's about to be some new ones as it relates to NIL there are a lot of people out there a lot of people in my industry that have uh, sold you their opinion that wasn't rooted in fact about NIL stuff. So we, we, talk, we say I'm tired of talking about it, but there has been some developments. I'm going to update you on that today. But there are a lot of people out there that have kind of hitched their wagon to the wild, wild west that is 
name, image, and likeness, and there's about to be some changes with all of that, which is going to be interesting. You know, my attitude's always been this. Like, when it comes to our job, like, we, we cover Mississippi State sports and other issues that relate to Mississippi State as a whole. But by and large, we're in the business of covering Bulldog sports. We don't need the sideshow. And sure, you've got an interest in it. We'll explain it. We'll spend some time covering it. But the thing that I've always felt, and it's like I used to always tell Gene, there'd always be these things that would pop up, and everybody's like, well, you got to do this, you got to do that, and you got to do this. And, you know, we change companies, and there's all this craziness. And I said, Gene, we just got to play the rock and roll show, man. Just got to play the rock and roll show. Our job is to cover Mississippi State sports better than anybody else. And we do. And so there are a lot of people out there that want to prioritize the distractions. And that's not to say that NIL isn't a big part of things these days. It certainly is. But if this new legislation that's been proposed passes and we expect it to, it's going to put some guardrails around a lot of that stuff. And so a lot of that noise is going to go away. A ton of it is going to go away. It's going to change the way that recruiting is handled as it relates to NIL. For two years now, it's just been an evolving system that hasn't had a lot of structure to it. That's about to change, which is going to be a really, really big deal for a lot of people that have kind of hitched their wagon to that and said, hey, this is the next revenue stream for us. People care about this. And what we're finding out is that people really don't. There's a lot of fatigue about NIL. And so I think with this federal legislation that is proposed, we're going to see that in many respects kind of fade into the background a little bit. I mean, how many times do you see it now? And we're going to have a baseball portal update too before the show is over. But it's like, you know, we'll be competing against LSU for a player in baseball. And so rather than it be about, hey, what's best for the player? You know, who has the best situation? Who did the best job recruiting them, making them feel like a priority? It's like, well, what's the NIL going to be like? You know, what kind of, how much is it going to cost us? That's not what we want in college athletics. We don't want players going to the highest bidder. I mean, goodness, that's the whole reason that we established a governing body in the first place was to prevent that. And there are some baseball coaches out there right now, their opening pitch to kids is, well, tell us what's it going to take, how much money is it going to take. Not about, hey, here's our plan for you. Here's our path for your development. Here's what we think that you need to improve a little bit. Here's what we can do for Forget all that. Hey, we're going to write you a check. That's not what we want in college sports. I think that my opinion is the collective opinion in that. You know, we want people to pick schools for the right reasons. And so right now, in many respects, and I never thought we'd see it in college baseball, we have, but after what LSU has done, legally, okay, legally, a lot of people say, you know, that's the way. And so then you think about those schools out there that are, uh, you know, maybe on the fringe of baseball. And what I mean by that is, you know, Mississippi State, LSU, Ole Miss, Arkansas, to a certain extent, Florida State and others, you know, we're very much committed to baseball. We, we can't fully fund it due to NCAA legislation, but we're very committed to baseball. So we have resources that are allocated for baseball that are very scary for other people. And then you think about, you know, the Louisville's of the world. You know, Dan McDonald's done a great job there. Do you think that Louisville fans are going to fund a bunch of money? They, want to, they don't even have to pay buy tickets there. I mean, it's free admission unless it's changed in recent years. 
And so they're not even paying to go to the games. You'd think they're going to fund an NIL fund to help procure players. It's not. And so where I see the damage in all of that, and nobody really talks about this, I've said this on the show before, the fact that Monmouth has the same level of voting power that Mississippi State or LSU does shows that something's wrong in the system. If we really want college baseball to grow, we've got to get our hands on this NIL thing because of the fact you already see LSU and Arkansas and Mississippi State, now Tennessee and others that uh, are really, you know, facilitating experiences that are really kind of unfound elsewhere in college baseball. Do you think Monmouth's ever going to vote to give us more for baseball? They're not. And then all of a sudden, we, we talk about, like, elections, and I don't want to get political with you guys, but it, it's, the part, it's not the partisans that establish who wins. It's the moderates. And so when you think about those programs in the middle of all this, because like programs like Monmouth are against the expansion of college baseball, and then programs like LSU and Mississippi State are for the advancement of college baseball, and I think there are probably some people in that upper tier that really don't want to see everybody else fully fund and compete in baseball. Uh, but then there's all those teams in the middle. And so what happens is I believe with this NIL thing, it's like, man, the rich are getting richer. There's no way we can compete in baseball. So there's no point in us continuing to allocate additional resources for baseball because we're not going to be able to compete. And so all of a sudden, you know, the middle-of-the-road programs would just say, you know what, we're going to decide with Monmouth on this legislation because we're not going to do anything to give Mississippi State, Arkansas, LSU, Ole Miss, Texas, Texas A&M – we're not going to do anything to give them a greater advantage than they already have. So it's damaging to the game of college baseball. And it's not just baseball, but because of the fact that baseball is not a fully funded sport, I think that's what you're seeing, though. I think people are like, you know what? We were in the arms race. We were competing. We were trying to do all these things to upgrade our facilities. We're spending more money on coaches. And now on top of that, we got to go raise money to get players out of the portal. Guys, we're just going to be done with all this. So I think it's damaging. And again, nobody talks about that. You know, our friend John Cohen, uh, last year on the D1 Baseball Committee, you know, but I, I don't envy the, that group moving forward because how do you continue to grow the game when the price of expansion continues to escalate? It just doesn't. I mean, what, what we're seeing is the gap between the haves and the have-nots is getting expensive. It is almost too great a divide to connect. It really is. Let's thank our friends at Bulldog Burger Company. I love Bulldog Burger Company. I loved them before they loved me, but, man, we love each other so much right now. I, I want you to go by and check them out. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive here in Stark, Vegas. And I don't know if you saw that, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the blue burger. You know what I'm talking about? The one with the blue cheese crumbles on it, the black and blue. It's back. Limited time only, but it's back. So if you've been missing that one, or perhaps that used to be in your regular rotation, a great restaurant quality hamburgers, you can go by there and get it again. And they're doing this great thing with the shakes too. There's like a shake for like a limited time only. They'll put this thing in a, a new shake. Go by and check it out. Treat yourself to some amazing cuisine at Bulldog Burger Company. Three great locations to serve you. University Drive in Star Vegas, Gloucester Street there in Tupelo, Lake Harbor Drive in the Ridge and Flowood area. Go have a good time. Get the spring rolls as your appetizer. They'll make you and everybody around you better looking. 
get that shake to go. Maybe it's not a chocolate shake. You know, maybe you're getting that lemon icebox pie shake, right? I mean, there, there's, it's a new one all the time. And maybe ask them, hey, what's, what's the, uh, the shake you guys are pushing these days? You know, a couple of years ago after, at Omaha, we had the banana shake. I mean, I, I said, hey, Bulldog Burger, we need to do this. And they did it for like a week, you know. It was great. Love those folks. I, I, I love places that I go that like, there's a consistency with the menu, but there's always something new, you know, something fresh that I can try. So as much as I love going there, I can always go there too, and there's going to be something new and exciting for me to uh, sample. So go by and check them out. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet, M-E-A-T. All right, let's talk some more about this NIL thing. So here is what we're looking at. So there is this bill. It's called the College Athletes Protection and Compensation Act. And the best thing about this, it's a bipartisan effort which means it's likely going to pass. Maybe not in its current form, but we are going to get something done about NIL. This is long overdue. And again, this again is an indictment on Mark Emmert and the NCAA for dragging their feet. But we have to have, have to have, a national law to bring this thing into focus. Because of the fact, like right now, you've got other other schools out there that are pushing their state legislators and saying, hey, we're not competitive enough in NIL. We need you to do this and you to do that. So what's gonna continue to happen is you're gonna have these uh, state laws that are basically different in every state that provide a competitive advantage for some schools over others. That just can't happen. That flies in the face of all of this, right? The whole point's to have a level playing field. But what's interesting, um, there's a lot of people. You know, Tommy Tuberville, a Republican from Alabama, uh, Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, they're collaborating on another bill in addition to this. Ted Cruz, Republican from Texas, Maria Cantwell, D- Democrat from Washington. All these people are involved. And so what happens, as you know as well as I do, there's so much of this. In order to get things done, you've got to have support on both sides of the aisle. This does. Now, the current bill... It's interesting, as, as uh, Ross Dellinger notes, it's kind of a, a surprising trio. It's uh, Richard Blumenthal, Democrat from Connecticut, Jerry Moran, Republican from Kansas, and Cory Booker, Democrat from New Jersey. Cory Booker, obviously a guy that uh, a lot of people know well, but they're all working together to get this thing done. And uh, what is so great about this is uh, there are people involved here that are kind of anti-NCAA. And so you know there is maybe some you know, personal parts of all of this. It's like we're going to use this to kind of uh, maybe push the NCAA around just a little bit. But it's an amazing thing just because of the fact that we've got so, so many different ideas of what this thing should look like. I think this bill, I've read it. And again, I'm not a a government official or anything. It makes sense to me as a person that covers and follows college athletics as closely as I do. It makes perfect sense to me. And there are some great benefits for student athletes in this, but also for the schools themselves. So if this act becomes a law, here are the things that it would uh, kind of restrict and also kind of open up for student athletes. So again, there's some benefits in this thing that currently don't exist. And I think when we get to the end of this discussion, you're going to say, you know what, Steve, that makes a lot of sense. It does. All right, the first thing is it permits schools to restrict an athlete from entering a deal that is contrary to the school's code of conduct for moral reasons. 
that already exists in Mississippi. So, like, you can't have a student athlete go out there and promote gambling or pornography. Uh, I don't even think they can do alcohol. Maybe they can't. But I, don't, I think in Mississippi, it's a little more restrictive. But in other places, that's not the case. And as we're seeing, like, you know, it seems like every day that just about every um, every one of these uh, uh, new Twitter accounts that pops up has got an OnlyFans, you know. And so a school would not want their student athletes being out there involved in something uh, that is morally compromised and potentially exploitive. So it's going to allow schools to, to nix a deal. And there's some things in Mississippi that are already in existence that don't appear other parts of the country, like you know, having to report the deal itself prior to the execution of to compliance. Right now people are like, ah, oh, it's just kind of wild. Do what you want to do. And that's not the case in Mississippi. It prohibits compensation to be used for inducements with recruits and the retention of current players. The first part makes a lot of sense. The second part kind of made me raise an eyebrow a little bit, you know, because that's kind of been our, our, our modus of operandi, right? It's like, you know what, we're not going to go out there and buy recruits, but we're going to do what we have to to keep our players from being bought out from under us. In the event that you're able to eliminate these inducements for recruits, maybe you don't have to pay for the retention of players, right? There's a lot of guys that say, hey, I need some money, so I'm going to go tell coach I'm going to go in the portal, right? Oh, well, we can't do that, you know? So there is a bit of a you know, maybe legalized extortion that's taking place there. But it would change the way collectives operate and probably take them back to how they were intended to operate, Right? Because remember the bill of goods they sold us in the beginning. It's like, hey, we're going to have deals. You're going to have opportunities to get a deal. Listen, I did an NIL deal with Kellum Clark to promote Dogpile. That's what NIL was intended to be for. Use his name, image, and likeness to make himself some money and to provide some advertising for me. That's what the whole thing was supposed to be. It's not that anymore. You know, how many times do you see everybody's like, oh, they got a big NIL deal. Where are the commercials? Where are the social media postings? Where are the personal appearances? Because that's what they told us in the beginning and say, yeah, this is a good thing. It is basically this bastardized version of what they offered us. And it's just not taking place the way it was intended. All right, another interesting dynamic here. Prohibit schools from rep. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her personal foundation, says they're seeing more issues than ever with dogs' joints, odors, and their health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can all look to improve our dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that many dog foods are made in a way they can actually create toxins that could possibly be wrecking our dog's health. And that's true for many of the premium brands as well. Fortunately, she's found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step -step how any of us can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. I've got five dogs. I do. I love them. I spend most of my time with them. In fact, Mojo, my mama blue healer, has helped me write six and a half books now. I want her to be as healthy and happy as possible. So if you feel like you do about your dogs the same way I do, let me encourage you to go to badlandsfood.com forward slash boneyard and watch Catherine's video right now 
And again, that's badlandsfood.com forward slash boneyard. Be sure and check it out and make sure your pet is happier and healthier than ever. Hi, Bulldog fans. Our friends from Tecovis want to remind you that uh, it's festival season. It's concert season. It's sundress season. Yes, it is. And you know you need some nice boots to go along with every bit of that. And Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western wear. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and so much more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a very time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort, so no break-in period. You know how tough that can be with a brand new pair of boots. You can put these bad boys on and ride that ride with a smile. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with the same level of style. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, shop the new styles, the smell of fresh leather, and a friendly staff are always at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience quite like it. If you can't make it to a store, visit Tacovas. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Presenting athletes and NIL ventures or influencing an athlete's, athlete's choice of representation. I don't know how much that's happening anyway, you know, but I'm sure there are some schools out there that's like, oh, no, no, we got to take care of this donor. You know, we get, this guy – is favorable to our program. So we need to make sure we're throwing business in their direction because, again, much of that money then comes back into, you know, the benefits and the coffers for the program. But that's interesting. Allow schools to prohibit athletes in engaging in NIL ventures that are concurrent with college athletic events or competition. I don't know how big of an issue that is, but the fact that it is listed shows that somewhere it is. Um, you know, a lot of that could be any number of things. Basically, what you're trying to prevent here is you don't want to add anything else onto the to-do list of student-athletes. In season, you know, we want to be able to get this taken care of. In addition to that, too, like you, you don't want a guy to, uh, to have the big, the big touchdown and then go on ESPN in postgame and hold up a Coke and say, hey, yeah, drink Coca-Cola. I'm going to go – now that this game's over, I'm going to go drink a Coke. You, you don't want that either. I don't think that's happened yet, but you certainly wouldn't want that, right? It, it'd be great for Coke, right? All of a sudden, you know, Alabama and LSU play and Jaden Daniels scores a game-winning touchdown, and the first thing he does is, you know, whips out a, you know, a Coke or puts on a, you know, a Reebok sweatsuit or something for his interview, you know. We don't want that. You know, we don't want – there's so many people already making money on college sports. Student athletes should be able to do it too, but we don't want to turn a press conference in, from an organic event into a uh, advertising or marketing opportunity for other people. One of the things I think is super cool about this, because of the fact that I know so many student athletes and uh, you know, I, I know many that when they finish up their college careers, they're a little bit banged up. And so the, one of these provisions now that is amazing is a couple things. Um, if an underclassman goes in a draft, it allows them to retain their eligibility and return to school within seven days of the draft ending 
provided they don't receive compensation from a team or agent. That's big. Because, you know, we, we talk about everybody in football especially. You know, guys decide that they're going to go into the draft and they don't get drafted, then there's nowhere for them to go. It's going to allow them the opportunity to return to school. The next thing is medical care. This may be, outside of the fact, just providing us some structure and leveling the playing field for NIL compensation, this may be the most important part of this act. For schools that make $20 million in revenue or more, they provide medical expenses for two years, two years, after a student athlete is finished, two years. So, like, you know, you, you, you work a guy along and he has off-season surgery. What if he needs a follow-up surgery? You know, as it stands today, that comes out of the student athlete and their family's pocket. If a school makes $50 million, then it's four years. That's pretty cool, too. So, they have a medical trust fund, according to Ross, that will cover long-term injuries not covered by schools. Schools making at least $50 million have to contribute annually. I think this is a great thing. We should not have a student athlete that goes out there and spends their time, effort, and emotion to go out there and entertain us. That's what, at the end of the day, it's entertainment. And then not be able to live a normal life after that. A student athlete shouldn't have an injury that prohibits them from returning to a normal life after college athletics. I mean, there's, you know, there's sometimes, unfortunately, there are some major injuries that happen, but a person shouldn't graduate college being physically handicapped. It just shouldn't be the case, not because they went out there and represented their university on the fields and courts of play. So that's a cool thing. That's a really cool thing to be able to do that. So uh, this thing is rolling forward, and uh, you may have noticed there was a statement issued on behalf of the uh, Power Five conferences that I think is interesting to talk about, too. I think it's one of those deals where there are so many people out there that, again, oh, nothing's going to happen. You really trust the federal government to fix this? Well, I, I do because they want to fix it. It's, it. This is not one of those deals, too, where you've got people on both sides of the, uh, you know, both sides of the line that, uh, you know, have an, a political agenda to be able to uh, politicize this issue and make it more about, you know, their political party. This is what's best. This, this, is gov this is good government at work here. And you say, well, Steve, I don't want the government involved in college athletics. Well, you missed that boat a long time ago. A long, long time ago. But again, the inaction of the NCAA and Mark Emmert, and that is his legacy. That is his legacy for basically, you know, lowering this to our doorstep and expecting our fans to be able to fund all this stuff. Uh, that's interesting. You know, that's a very interesting aspect of all of this. But the cool thing is, is this thing's about to take place. But here's the statement. As members of the Autonomy Five conferences, that's the Power Five, the ACC, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and SEC applaud Senators Blumenthal, Booker, and Moran for their thoughtful work on legislation to protect and benefit student-athletes. Given the ever-changing landscape of college athletics, developing a federal standard 
that will preserve college athletics and serve as a uniform name, image, and likeness standard for athletes and institutions across the country is now essential. Yes, it is. We are pleased to see that momentum continues building in both the Senate and the House to address this issue. Our conferences welcome additional efforts in the future, and we, we look forward to engaging with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to continue making progress on bipartisan legislation in Congress. End quote. So you have the five most powerful conferences in all college athletics working with both Democrats and Republicans to get this thing done quickly. And then we've got some other people out there that obviously have an agenda about NIL. Like, oh, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah, well, you know, you just had the, the, the commissioners of the five largest athletics conferences the game has ever seen come together and agree on this. What are the chances of that? I mean, think about this. The fact that you can get the SEC and the Pac-12 and all the other conferences to agree that this is a good thing, and you've got senators that don't like each other, that are putting their differences aside on both Republican and Democratic side, said, hey, there's a problem. We need to fix this. It just goes to show you this is going to happen. In some form or fashion, this is going to happen, much to the chagrin of many. But I think most of us, and I think the casual fan is like, Steve, I'm just so tired of this NIL thing. You know, this is going to remove that from the front burner. So in many respects, while you'll still have the opportunity to have NIL compensation, it'll go back to more of how it was intended. It was never intended to be a recruiting inducement, ever. That wasn't the plan. And so now, if this bill passes as it's written, or somewhere close, we're going to go back to the spirit of the original conversation. It was never supposed to be a thing where all of a sudden we develop all these slush funds and we just start throwing money at players. They don't have to do anything for. The whole thing is NIL compensation. Think about that for a second. On its face, it's compensation for your name, image, and likeness. Well, if you're not using your name, image, or likeness to promote something, what are you being compensated for? Well, you know, Steve, they, they spend so much time and effort on the field. Well, that's what the scholarship is for. That's what the stipend is for. But now, you know, we're just going to throw more money on top of it because the kid gets upset with his coach and threatens to go in the portal, and so let's go throw $5,000 at him so he doesn't leave and go to our rival schools that we're doing. It was never intended to be this way. And so I'm encouraged, as you should be as well, because I'm just happy to kind of remove this as a topic of conversation, but also, too, uh, basically give everybody a chance to kind of get back to how it should have been. And again, yes, it would have been wonderful. Will Rogers should have always been able to, hey, go make a deal with, uh, you know, the car dealership in his hometown and get paid to do an ad. Uh, Chris Jones and Dak Prescott and Jake Mangum should have been able to be compensated for people buying their jerseys. That's right. What's happening now is wrong. And thankfully, we're finally getting there. And I've talked about it for a year now, and I've even had people on my own website tell me, oh, Steve, there's not, it's not going to happen. Guys, it's going to happen. <laughs> you might as well go ahead and accept it. The fact, I mean, the fact that Cory Booker, who's one of the most polarizing members of Congress, is working with the Republican side, you know, people that he argues tooth and nail with and says, hey, we got to come together here and get this thing done. If that doesn't tell you it's going to get done, nothing will. They're going to do whatever they need to do 
to get this thing done. That's going to be a big thing for college sports. And uh, I think we're going to be able to kind of push away from a lot of this and kind of get back to normal. Like, there's so many people I, I see. It, I go out and speak. I talk to people like, you know, Steve, this transfer portal stuff and the NIL stuff, it's just it's just worn me out, man. I, I mean, it's like I can't even enjoy college athletics. My honest opinion is the portal is not really the issue, even though there are some things that we can do with the portal to kind of make it a little bit better, and they are. They're going to shorten the windows. Like, that was the big thing last year. We needed to establish transfer windows. So, again, you didn't have a player get his feelings hurt in practice and just run to compliance and say, I'm going to transfer. Coach hurt my feelings. And so you couldn't coach him, right? You couldn't coach him. So now you know, so we put windows in place. Now we're going to shorten those windows. Because let's be honest, I mean, like right now, there's, you know, the, window, the window has been open, right? And nobody was going in. I mean, we just, we just wrapped up the uh, transfer window for college baseball. Yeah, and we'd like to probably change that a little bit anyway, you know. But the reality of it is, is what was doing 90 days? Let's take it down to 45. You can't make a decision in six weeks that you want to transfer. You ain't got to pick a school. You just got to let us know. It shouldn't run, you know, from May to the middle of July. It shouldn't. Give everybody six weeks. And, then, and not to mention, too, it elongates the recruiting process, too, for coaches. Because like, think about it right now. I mean, look at what you're dealing with right now. It's July 24th. Like, we're going we're gonna to start school here in a few weeks. And Chris Simonis and his staff are still chasing players in a transfer portal. Still. So if, if we had moved this back, let's say the transfer portal deadline was June 15th, well, this would probably already be done. And so you think about, you know, the workload for your coaches and your administrators, and you know, all of a sudden we've got to have an official visit. Let's turn the lights on in the stadium. Got to have a catered meal. You know, that goes on and on and on and on and on. Not to mention, Lamontis knows guys are having to facilitate summer camps, too, for the next guys <laughs> that eventually go in the portal, right? But I think, you know, the portal, again, I think there's some good things about the portal. Um, but it's the NIL inducement attached to the portal. Like when schools are contacted by a third party and says, hey, I am um, I'm Ulysses Peters' uncle, and he wants to go in the portal, what will you give him if he does? We want to eliminate all that. You absolutely want to eliminate that because then they're the 707 coach. And then there's guys in our state. There are people in our state that are basically, you know, working as de facto agents. They're not registered with the state. And we've been dealing with that all year this year. You know, got guys out here that are, like, trying to broker deals for these people. Well, you remove NIL compensation from recruiting – you eliminate those people. They'll go back to being bag men. But basically, you've legitimized a lot of that stuff with this NIL legislation. So we'll fix that. And when you've got people in this state that are out there traveling and uh, trying to broker deals for young people to leave the state, that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing. And somebody within our state needs to do something about that. But, of course, this, the federal legislation now in many respects will change that. So that's important to understand there's a lot of layers to this, and all of them are good for Mississippi State, in my estimation. It's my opinion. Time for today's top ten list is always um, brought to you by CloseWithBlair.com. Uh, Blair tells me again, man, you guys, the boneyarders, are kind of loading up the pipeline, starting to close loans with great regularity. And I mentioned, too, we talked about this for about a week or so now. Again, really consider this. And uh, I don't know who's the dominant parent 
you know, we, you say it's a partnership, but you and I both know. They're, one, one of the parents says, hey, let's do this. And I was like, oh, okay, if you think so, right? That's usually how it works, especially when it comes to making business decisions. Again, if you're sending your kid off to college, rather than throw your money away on an apartment, consider, you know, buying a condo. Co-signing for your student, because they can do it at 18. When their four or five years are up, you can sell it, recoup your investment, and establish some adult credit for your son or daughter. That's a really cool thing. Blair can tell you how it all works. I mean, it's a pretty real, it's a pretty easy concept to understand, but it's a new law. And uh, Blair knows all the ins and outs about it. You know, top 1% close ratio in the country. It's the guy that gets things done. All we've done now is give Blair another weapon to work with, right? Give him a call or text today at 601-500-2344. Again, 601-500-2344. Reach out to him or go to close at Blair.com. Mention to him you heard about him on the barnyard. Um, I'm not saying you get special treatment, but you probably do, you know, because Blair is one of us. Want to take care of everybody. But uh, appreciate you guys giving Blair the opportunity to serve you. It's a guy that's been in the industry 22 years. 22. Pretty impressive. Nobody stays in any industry 20 plus years by accident. You got to get things done. You got to be a producer. That's what Blair is. Again, uh, close at Blair.com. All right. Today's top 10 is very special to me. Uh, Should have done this last week, but maybe I wasn't ready last week. And you know, guys, you guys have I've written a new book, When the Bottom Falls. You can pre-order at whenthebottomfalls.com. I'm done writing. We'll finish up final edits this week. We'll push that thing out to print. We'll have your book here in September. How about that? How cool is that? It's incredible that we can go from my desktop to a print to the store. But uh, you can pre-order. And uh, many of you, of course, live out of state. This thing isn't going to be available through Amazon. I got a whole deal to tell you about Amazon. I don't sell books through Amazon. Other people do, but I want to protect our local vendors and our independent bookstores in Mississippi. And so after Flim Flam, I had a discussion. I won't tell you who because I won't embarrass them. But because uh, I, I give them credit for saying something to me because I, I didn't think about it, right? And uh, the bottom line is this. Is, you know, Flim Flam had a lot of national appeal, and we sold thousands of books through Amazon. Thousands. And some, some weeks, you know, the publisher was having to ship books daily to Amazon. And as soon as they'd get them, they'd sell out. Because there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people that didn't frequent bookstores in Mississippi. So it was a vehicle for us to, to, to sell our books. And we did. And to date, Flim Flam is still the best-selling book I had. Dog piles close. And, we're, and I'm probably hurting myself financially by not, not using uh, Amazon. But the way that I looked at it is, again, that they were, had a, a vendor that we have had a great relationship with. And I think he probably regrets saying it, but I'm glad he did. One day, I'm at a book signing, and a guy walks in, and he goes, hey, I didn't buy the book here. I bought it on Amazon. Will you sign it for me? Well, the, you know, the whole point, really, I'll sign every book if people show up, right? But I, I want you to buy a book from them. And if you've already, like, if you came to buy Dog Pile and you brought Flim Flam with you or Stark Villains, I'm happy to sign that for you, too. But, like, the whole point of me doing the book signing is not just for me to sell books, but for you to go into their store, right? That's the whole point of them hosting me, to sell books but to sell other merchandise. And uh, this guy just showed up one day, and that's all he did. He goes, hey, can you sign my book? I bought it on Amazon. And as the guy left, 
the gentleman turned to me and he goes, you know, that, that Amazon stuff is killing us. I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I mean, you know, we've been here with you all along. And we just had a guy buy a book online and come to our store to have you sign it. We don't profit from that. And not to mention, they lowered the price so much that, you know, people are just going to buy it from Amazon rather than buy it from us because they can buy it from us at full retail or buy it for them at a discount. And there was one time when Flim Flam was really hot. And sometimes they were selling it for $19.99. I think I've seen it as low as $17.99 at times. I know somebody last week bought it for $47, bucks, which I have no clue why you do that. Somebody's like, yeah, I bought this book. It was $47.99. You can go on our website and buy it for $25 bucks right now, right? I don't know why you'd ever do that. But thank you. Uh, Amazon, a pocket, all that money. I won't make any more money off that. It's because you paid more. But um, so after Flim Flam, I said, you know, we're not going to do it anymore. We're not going to do Amazon anymore. And we have it. Now, there, like Stark Villains, there was a bookstore on the coast that, you know, they saw an opportunity and said, hey, if Steve's not going to do Amazon, we will. And they set up like the Stark Villains bookstore or whatever. That was not affiliated with me. They just bought our books and sold them online. And congratulations to them for showing some innovation, right? That's their decision. That wasn't through Amazon itself. That was through a storefront set up by a Missy Bookstore. I support that. But we're not doing Amazon. And, um, that's why, because a lot of people that have asked me, Steve, why not? Well, it's because these people here, the great bookstores in Mississippi, have been with me from the beginning. Why would I want to hinder their ability to do business? Yes, it would be more convenient for many of you to go to Amazon. I'm on Amazon all the time, but I'm buying things I can't, I can't get locally, right? And so I, I share that with you just because... I'm a big proponent of, of buying and shopping local, eating local, staying local, no matter if I'm in Starkville or not. No matter where I travel, I try to always support small business. And even though I use Amazon, I do, but I buy things that I can't buy locally. Like today, I bought a shirt, a Mother Love Bone shirt, and that's the subject of your top 10. We're going to have a very, very educational day today. But again, if you're looking for the new book, when the bottom falls.com. You can get everything there. When the bottom falls, if you have been impacted by addiction, if someone you love has been impacted by addiction or alcoholism, or if you know somebody that you work with or church with, or whatever, I'm going to encourage you to buy the book. This is not a vanity project. This is about my path to addiction and to recovery. And I wrote this in, in, in hopes of, of helping other people. And uh, it's the longest book I've ever written, longer than Dogpile. There's a lot in there, and I could have I put a, could have packed even more. And my wife even told me afterwards. She goes, you know, we could you could probably do a sequel, and we'll see. You know, we'll see how that goes. But uh, the reality of it is, is I did my best to put everything that I know about addiction and recovery in that book. And so again, I'm encouraging you to buy that when the bottom falls.com. But back to uh, Mother Love Bone. This album came out uh, on July 19th, 1990, and so. Nobody knew. When Apple, the debut album from Mud Love Bone came out, it just wasn't a big deal. They had had an EP before they came out, a five-song EP called Shine. And uh, the thing, let me back up just a little bit here. All right, so I want to make sure you understand this because it seems like every kid that I know these days has bought them a Nirvana shirt at Walmart or at Spencer's Gifts or whatever. I'm going to give you guys a history lesson because there's so many people. Listen, I was absolutely obsessed 
with grunge. Absolutely obsessed. Even though that I, I hate what the record companies did. You know, they abandoned bands like Warrant and Janie Lane and, and Rat and people like that that had made them millions, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, and say, well, let's do something different. And, so, and really, it's MTV, in many respects. There's kind of some collusion there, so we need something different. And here's the thing about that. There are so many people, you say, well, Steve, why do you hate Nirvana so much? Well, part of it's because of the fact that they are falsely attributed for so much. To suggest that Nirvana started grunge would be like saying Poison started heavy metal. And that's not in any way to be disrespectful to Nirvana or to Poison. They didn't ask for that. You know, Black Sabbath already had, you know, a, a huge following before heavy metal really took over in America. And so, yes, Poison was ultra successful. Brett Michaels recently played at Philadelphia and had a capacity crowd. People had a great time. Right? There's nothing wrong with that, but we don't have to go back and have this revisionist history and try to suggest that Brett Michaels was Ozzy. He wasn't, and that's okay. It's the same thing with this Nirvana thing. It's like, well, Kurt Cobain invented grunge. No, he didn't. He absolutely did not. But Steve, no, but you, you don't know what you're talking about. And so I'm going to give you a history lesson today about, as a matter of fact, Kurt Cobain, the very first show, the very first real concert he went to, even though, again, and, and I'm going to tell you this too, and you're going to think it's disrespectful, but you can take it up with Kirsten Novoselic. Kurt Cobain was a liar too. He lied about so much about his past. He was a very, very troubled person, as you know, even as a young person. The very first concert that Kurt Cobain went to, Sammy Hagar, okay? So put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, so let's get to this, okay, about Mother Love Bone. A little bit of history here. Uh, so in 1980, the Seattle sound really began to change. You had the Melvins, you had the U-Men, you had Skinyard, and you had Malfunction. Those bands really were doing something different. Melvins was credited with being the first band to really do drop detuning. They weren't the only ones, but they were the, kind of the first ones to kind of make that their signature sound. And so when you think about drop detuning, which was very prevalent in the grunge era, you can credit the Melvins for that because everybody heard them like, dude, where, where's that tone coming from? What are they doing? Well, they, they've tuned down. And so it had this darker, more ominous feel to it because so much of like the 80s is like, I mean, all I think about is like Ernie Ball super slinkies on a pink Ibanez with a monkey grip, right? I mean, it was so different from that because everything that happened in the 80s was very up and operatic. And, you know, it, it, before grunge yet, you know, probably the most successful band at the time playing 80s style music was Queen Trike from Seattle. Like they, they were known as kind of the kings of Seattle. And then this begins to happen. And you, you listen to Queen Trike, there's actually some elements of grunge in Queen Trike. You say, but Steve, no, because Queen Track wasn't a hair metal band at all. But you go back and listen to some of the things that Michael Wilton and Chris DeGarmo were good doing guitar-wise, you hear that in Mike McCready. You do. Mike McCready is one of the best metal guitar players of this generation that doesn't play metal. He actually played on Ozzy Osbourne's album, this patient number nine. Mike McCready is a huge metal guy. Alice in Chains, b before... Jerry Cantrell really kind of took over leadership of the bands. Alice in Chains was an 80s hairband. But Steve, no, but you, 
you don't know what you're talking about. You can go look it up for yourself. You can see Lane Staley with teased up hair and his little denim jacket. You know, so much of this stuff with the grunge thing was an image. People were just trying to make money. Music was changing. But Malfunction was a band that, in 1980, they were founded. Andrew Wood was a singer. And in 2011, Stone Gossard, and God bless Stone Gossard, he takes all these Malfunction demos and releases them as an album. So you got a chance to go listen to that. It's pretty cool. And remember, it, it is demo form, right? I mean, most of it's a four-track or an eight-track type recording, so it's not like the big room studio stuff. But uh, you can kind of hear the genesis of what became with Love Bone. But here are some bands. Like, guys, Nirvana was founded in 87. Okay, and that's not, they didn't get a record deal in 87. They were founded. They're playing garage and local bars. They're playing Tuesday nights at bars in Seattle. They weren't even headliners on a weekend. It took probably a year before they began to headline clubs. But here are some bands that were already playing and already had record deals. Screaming Trees in 84, U-Man 1980, Soundgarden 1984, Skinyard 1983, The Melvins 1983, Green River 1984. Of course, if you know your Pearl Jam history, you know before Jeff Ament and Stone Gossard were in Mother Love Bone. They were in Green River, then Mother Love Bone, and then Pearl Jam. The best band from the 90s. But Mother Love Bone was really the first one that was expected to have the big deal. A lot of these bands were kind of like postmodern punk, but Mother Love Bone was different because you took the best elements of Green River and combined them with the best elements of Malfunction. And that became the album Apple. Uh, originally, they, they released a, the five-song EP, Shine, and uh, in 92, they released the Mud Love Bone, I guess you'd call it a compilation album. It was basically Shine and Apple together, 17 songs, and uh, that came out in 92. And so that was, you know, listen, that was a very important time in my life. 91, as you guys know, was very, very difficult for me. But 92, I met Dana July 10th of 92. Our first date was August 10th of 92. We got engaged October 7th of 92 and married May 15th of 93. So she went from being a complete stranger to being on my joint checking account less than a year's time. But 92 was an important year for me. And uh, so I was, again, absorbing everything that I could possibly find uh, grunge because I liked it. I did. And you look back at it in hindsight and you say, well, it only lasted about 15 minutes, and which is true, because here's the deal. Like, I make the whole thing about Brett Michaels to Ozzy, Kurt Cobain, uh, you know, to Malfunction and, and uh, the U-Men and people like that. This genre already existed. Heavy metal already existed. But guys like Brett Michaels kind of took it mainstream. Because even with bands like Motley and Rat, it was still kind of niche. Like, we like the fact that our parents didn't like it. But Brett Michaels, you know, the Pretty Boys and Poison, all of a sudden it was a lot easier to watch those guys. You know, they weren't in, you know, leather jackets and looking like they'd stepped out of a biker bar. And so it was a little more commercially acceptable. And that's what happened with Nirvana. You had this 
movement that had been well established in the Pacific Northwest that was beginning to kind of matriculate across the country, mainly down the West Coast. And then Soundgarden broke. And people, the key part of the Soundgarden thing is Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses loved Chris Cornell, loved him. And so they take Soundgarden out. So now all of a sudden Soundgarden really gets the big break for grunge. Soundgarden went from being a regional act to being a national act because of 80s metal. Because they go out on the Use Your Illusion tour in support of Guns N' Roses. And then Soundgarden, of course, because they're going out with Guns N' Roses, all of a sudden Headbangers Ball and MTV starts playing Soundgarden. You know, the Loud Love album comes out. Ultra Mega OK was kind of an afterthought at that point. It really wasn't in record stores. But when Loud Love comes out, all of a sudden people are like, oh, this hands all over guy, Chris Cornell, this guy can really sing, right? So we knew something different was happening. And so I say that to kind of let's correct the narrative and support it with the actual facts rather than what's become now accepted as fact that is not factual at all. Again, all due respect to Nirvana, I didn't like them. I didn't get it. Even now in hindsight, I think so much of that was completely disjointed. And they were kind of propped up in many respects as a corporate creation. And if that hurt your feelings, then too bad. That's exactly what they were. You go back and, but Steve, no, that stuff with Sub Pop. Yeah, exactly. That's what they really intended to be. And then you got this homogenized kind of polished thing and never mind. Then you go back and listen in Utero, which was an album that was nearly shelved but the record company was upside down in it and Kurt had become so combative in recording sessions, they used three or four different producers to finally get in utero complete just to get it to market. And then of course the ride ended. And so again, you can't discount the fact that Nirvana helped take it mainstream, but to suggest they were the innovators of grunge, that is absolutely false, period. Mother Love Bone and Andrew Wood, the rightful fathers of grunge music. And we just had the one album. And sadly, days before it was planned to be released, Andrew Wood died of a heroin overdose. You may not know this either. Andrew Wood was born in Columbus, Mississippi. Who did, how do we know that? The Golden Triangle, right? Kind of the cradle of grunge music. You kidding me? Yeah, that's right. Even with grunge, Mississippi is part of the story. It's amazing to think about, right? How this is the birthplace of America's music, as we say. And it is. Even grunge. How about that? You didn't expect to learn that today, but you did. But uh, Andrew Wood had been a heroin addict. He really got involved in drugs in the mid-80s and uh, was back and forth. And then he was trying to kick it. He went to rehab uh, after they finished the album. He said, because he was one of these kind of people that didn't think that he could write or create without narcotics. And told his mom he needed to go to rehab to get clean. He got out, he was clean, and then he relapsed and was found comatose and lived for two days on uh, life support and ultimately died. And so that album just kind of withered away, that Apple album in 1990. So again, you had the Shine EP and then Apple, and you're like, well, that's it. It goes out of print. It's completely dormant. It's in nobody's store. It's not a big deal at all. And then all of a sudden, Soundgarden explodes. Chris Cornell and Andrew Wood were roommates and best friends. Matter of fact, if you, could, you can find it on YouTube. There is one song of Andrew Wood and Chris Cornell singing together in their apartment. It's a song called Island of Summer. 
and you can hear them harmonize. It's, it's amazing. But again, it's just two guys sitting around playing guitar and recording on like a four track. It's not polished in any way, but it's the only recording of the two of them singing together. And you can find it again on YouTube. And it's in that documentary too, Malfunction, the Andrew Wood story, if you want to watch that. But as Soundgarden and Pearl Jam began to explode, there was so much interest in Seattle. There were a lot of people involved in the Seattle scene that were like, hey, you know, this all started with Andrew and Mother Love Bone. And so they re-release Apple as this compilation album with Shot. And so we're going to pick today, and it's difficult to do. There's 17 songs, and, and this is one of those Holy Grail albums. In many respects, it's kind of the Six Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here Comes the Sex Pistols. It's kind of like that of Grunge. It is one of those albums that, in many respects, is kind of the Holy Grail of grunge music. So if you appreciate grunge and you love grunge and you like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and bands like that and you don't know Mother Love Bone, you owe it to yourself to go back and listen. So there's your history lesson. But here are my top 10 Mother Love Bone songs. Now, Dana, I used to call her Miss Rose Bowl. I try not to do that. I got some friends that call her that. I, I, I'm going to ask people not to do that. Don't call her Miss Rose Bowl. I'm Rose Bowl. I don't mind being called Rose Bowl. But she has her own identity. And she is not just my wife. She's Dana. So when you see her, and you'll see her at some book signings this year, please don't call her Miss Rose Bowl. Call her Dana. Because that's, she's my baby, but she's Dana. Uh, but she'll disagree. I didn't put one of her favorites on this list. Because it's my list. I mean, if she wants to start her own show, she can. And build her own following, that's fine. She loves the song Bone China. I didn't put it on here. I love it too. But I've got 17 songs to pick from, so there's going to be something deserving that's not on the list. All right, number 10 for me, and this is the one song that's from the demo Shine that maybe didn't get the notoriety that some of the others did because, again, they're all part. It didn't make Apple, but it did make the compilation album. It's a song called Mindshaker Meltdown. I absolutely love this thing. I would love to have heard this, like, ultra-produced, right? You know what I mean? Like, if they could really fine-tune it a little bit. But I think the raw nature of the guitar tone is one of the things that really stands out. Number nine, from Apple, it's Hard Shine. Love this one and uh, love the vocal on it. And you can kind of hear Andrew's passion in this song. Uh, number eight, and I've told people I want this played at my funeral. It's a man of golden words. It's a ballad. It's a you know, piano in the background. And uh, there's a lyric in there that ultimately proved to be ultra important where he says, it feels like I've been living in the temple of the dog. Well, of course, I get chills even saying that, because, you know, temple of the dog, of course, you know, Chris Cornell had written Say Hello to Evan and reached down. They put together this album with Stone and Jeff and the guys in Pearl Jam, Matt Cameron, and um, the Temple of the Dog album, which was remastered a couple years ago and then re-released. But that's where they get that from. Temple of the Dog is from the song Man of Golden Words, and um, that's also Interesting, too, a little flim-flam note for you. We talked about that earlier in the show. Um, there is a Temple of the Dog song. That the title of that is one of the title of one of my chapters in that book. It's Pushing Forward Back. And, again, this, again, goes back to Andrew Wood and Chris Cornell and all of that. And so I just thought it was apropos. Nobody ever said, hey, Steve, you named the chapter after Temple of the Dog song. It's kind of an inside, you know, trivia fact with myself. Now you know, too. Number seven, uh, a song called Captain High Top, The Love Commander. Uh, the last rock band that I was in, we covered this song. 
I love it. I love the energy in it. Um, we put it together, and um, you think there's all these great songs in, in this catalog, and, and on this album, that's the one you go with. I just loved it. I thought uh, Number one, I thought we could play it and I could sing it, so we did it. But Captain High Top is number seven. Uh, number six, the lead track on Apple, uh, this is Shangri-La. Um, love it, and again, it's one of those things, too, that just kind of punches you right in your face. There's not as much attitude in the guitar playing with grunge. It's a little different, you know, and a lot of people, it is some very angry music, but this is like before. And honestly, I think a lot of the subject matter that kind of leaked into Alice in Chains and Soundgarden, a lot of that was because of Andrew Wood's death. I think he was such an amazing person and talent that his death kind of changed the direction of the Seattle scene. And I can't always say it's a positive thing, but I think it's a big, big part of things. I mean, Chris Cornell himself mentioned that he had depression, bouts of depression for years because of Andrew Wood's death, about how unfair it all was. Number five, Capricorn Sister. Absolutely love this one. You probably have heard this one and didn't know that uh, what the name of the song was or who sang it. Because it seems like in every early 90s uh, movie, they worked in some Mother Love Bone, and Capricorn Sister was one of those songs. Uh, the guitar on it is, is super, super cool. Number four, I love this one. I absolutely love it. My favorite part of this song is the breakdown. Uh, it's Holy Roller, number four. What's interesting, too, is kind of the genesis of this song. And for those of you that will go to the trouble of pulling out the malfunction demos, there's a track on there called Shotgun Wedding, and some of the lyrics from Shotgun Wedding make their way in the Holy Roller, in the, whole, in, in the Love Bone Breakdown. You know, they're playing the guitar part, and he goes to Love Bone Breakdown. And he's like, you know, he talks about love rock awaits you, and, you know, the boys in Mother Love Bone know what to do for you. They're like soup. They're like nothing bad, I'll tell you that much. Um, and you know what? I think I've actually, I, I'm telling you the wrong story here. That shotgun wedding thing is actually part of Man of Golden Words. My mistake. But there are some elements of that in the Holy Roller thing. Uh, but some of the lyrical content from Man of Golden Words is in Shotgun Wedding. It, it fits in Man of Golden Words better. But there is some of that too in Holy Roller. My mistake. Here I am trying to pass myself off as the expert and I make a mistake like that. My mistake. I, I think we could probably, I think most of us would agree that the top three are probably correct. We may disagree on the order. Number three is Stargazer. And uh, I, I love this one. When I first heard it, it always reminded me of Dana. And, um, you know, I, tell, I told this to Roy earlier. The day before payday, like when the, when the, v, the Mother, Love, Mother Love Bomb VHS came out, we, it came out on a Tuesday, and we were getting paid that Friday. And so our last 20 bucks, the Thursday before payday, we went and bought the Mother Love Bomb VHS. I still have it. Yeah, I don't have I don't have a VCR player that I that I use. I've got one around here somewhere, but I still have that VHS. I mean, it's a relic of our past. It's memorabilia of things that mean something to us. But um, Stargazer number three, number two, probably Dana's favorite Mother Love Bone song. It's Crown of Thorns, and number one, it's Stardog Champion, the one that started it all. They made a video for it. They released it. Of course, that was all in support of the album. And uh, give uh, Chris Cornell, the guys from Pearl Jam, a lot of credit for reintroducing a generation to Andrew Wood. Again, you know, really the innovator of grunge. I think in many respects, I think those people that really truly follow the scene would say that Andrew Wood is probably the father of grunge music. Not Alice in Chains, 
not nirvana, not screaming trees or mud hunting, even though those, those bands were all very influential. It really goes back to Andrew Wood. Things were changing. And what a dynamic personality. And uh, what a shame that we lost him when we did. Uh, but let's celebrate some Andrew Wood today. And, of course, the album, again, the album was released July 19, 1990. It was delayed because days leading up to its release, Andrew died. So they pushed back the release. And, of course, the band disbanded because without Andrew, there was no Mother Love Bone. And that ultimately uh, Stone and Jeff stuck it out and found a singer from San Diego, California by the name of Eddie Vedder. And uh, Pearl Jam became the band of the 1990s. Still performing, still in, still selling out arenas. And uh, again, I just thought today would be a good day to kind of correct so much of this. There's so many young people today. Like I've got a young kid in my life that has a Nirvana shirt, and um, I would never be a proponent of that. But uh, he's free to wear what he wants to wear. But there are a lot of people, again, they, they want to argue with me about this, and it's, it's just it's okay to love them. It's okay to say, you know what, hey, I, I love Nirvana. That's cool, but it is not correct to say that they were the founders of grunge music. They weren't the innovators of grunge music. They were basically the product of a record company trying to cash in on a movement that was already well underway for nearly a decade. But it wasn't until Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, goodness, I mean, Soundgarden had sold two million records before Nirvana had a record deal. It's important to understand that. So again, people say, Steve, you always hate on Nirvana. I don't really hate on Nirvana, even though I didn't like them. I hate on the fact that we have this revisionist history. And if you do some research about um, Kurt Cobain, and uh, there's some interviews out there with Kurt Novoselic, and he talks about how Kurt had a very, basically a BS degree in revisionist history. You know, like he would tell people all sorts of things about himself that were just false. I mean, just, I guess because maybe the truth was uh, too painful. You know, he was a guy that was very tortured and parents divorced at a young age. And uh, after that, he became a very rebellious young man. And, and that continued, you know, for much of his life. And so rest in peace, Kurt. No, uh, no hard feelings by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, grunge was a movement that didn't last. I mean, nowadays, nobody plays grunge music anymore. They don't. And outside of Pearl Jam, you don't see people out there doing big shows anymore from the grunge era. You, you just don't. It's amazing. You know, Motley Crue and Def Leppard and those guys are out selling out arenas all over the world. And uh, grunge, in many respects, was, I guess, in some respects, kind of force-fed down our throats to kill the 80s metal scene that had become very, very homogenized. It was very cookie cutter at that point. You had a lot of bands that were basically ripping off other bands. There wasn't a lot of new stuff that uh, was very creative. Uh, and so, you know, the music industry was, was ripe for something new. They gave us grunge and then you had the post grunge world and things got really weird then. You had a lot of bands that really didn't have much talent, uh, but you know, they were getting kind of pushed and pushed and pushed. And uh, in many respects, you know, it didn't hold up. You know, there's some people today that'll tell you, oh, I love this band. You know, I love them, my favorite band. And, and then them and like 20,000 people buy their records. I mean, it's just, it's not what it once was. And like today, the sound is so overprocessed and kind of industrial rock based. There's so much of the music you hear today. You hear a lot of elements of uh, Nine Inch Nails and Ministry and, and things like that. We basically have blended so much. It's become uh, gender, excuse me, genre bending 
be careful how I say that genre bending type music where you know there are things nowadays that are just completely different so an elongated top 10 list today because I wanted to give you a bit of a history lesson uh, we thanks to uh, Blair and everybody else for their ideas for the top 10 got a big one coming up on Wednesday we were going to run that one today and I decided to do Mother Love Bone instead but uh, we got a big one coming up on uh, Wednesday with another interesting history lesson about American music that uh, we'll talk about our next segment of the show is always brought to you by Campus Bookmart. Campus Bookmart, a Starkvillian institution. I love Campus Bookmart. You should, too. If you're looking for Mississippi State merchandise, look no further than Campus Bookmart. You know, the bottom line is this. Everybody out there says, we got the best selection of Mississippi State merch. They don't. They don't. Campus Bookmart, the mother love bone of Mississippi State merchandising outfits, for sure. There are a lot of people that are pretenders to the throne, but Ms. Kathy Brown and the fine folks at Campus Bookmart, they are the originators and innovators when it comes to Mississippi State merchandising. If you can't make it to town, visit them on the World Wide Web at campusbookmart.net. And by being a loyal Bondard listener, we'll give you a phrase that pays. That's BSR, which stands for Beautiful Steve Roberts, and that gets you free shipping on all orders over 75 bucks. Any order less than $75, absolutely incomplete. All right, we'll begin our SEC previews with the University of Alabama. And uh, we're going to play them again, and then we won't play them next year. How cool is that? How cool is that? I'm excited about that. Very excited about that. Uh, It's going to be kind of interesting to not have to play those guys. But uh, Alabama going to be elite on defense this year. You know, you start thinking, well, Steve, you know, they lost this and they lost that. They lost – they lost Will Anderson. You know, they did. They did lose Will Anderson. But Alabama, we talk about all the time, they don't rebuild, they reload. Nick Saban's got that thing running like a sewing machine over there. But uh, Alabama finished number two in the West last year, as you guys are well aware. Uh, big game, big win down there for LSU in Tiger Stadium as they beat Alabama. And, again, the Alabama team last year was great. But they weren't one of those teams you looked at and say, you know what, they're elite. You know, there were some games last year, and we go back and we think about all that stuff, that in hindsight, I mean, Bryce Young won some games for them last year, basically on his own. And I hate to, you know, to under, you know, underscore the, con- excuse me, to undersell the accomplishments of other people. But the reality of it is there were a couple of games last year, and you know, you and I both know that if Bryce Young didn't go make some plays on his own, Alabama loses. I mean, that's just kind of how it all went, you know. And uh, let's take a quick, you know, kind of glance back at how things went for the Tide last year. And, um, you know, kind of got off the good enough start. They, they blast Utah State. They sneak by Texas 20-19, to 19, and that's one of those games we're talking about. If you remember, Bryce Young basically willed that team to a victory late and set up a game-winning field goal. And they win 20-19. to 19. But you kind of got a feeling then this Alabama team may not be what we thought, but you say, you know what? You, great teams win when they don't play well. And Alabama finds a way to escape Austin, Texas with a W. They then blast Louisiana Monroe 63-7, and then they get Vanderbilt 55-3. So 55 or more points in three of the first four games. They go to Arkansas. It's a tussle for a little while in Arkansas. Do, does what Arkansas does against Bama. They end up kind of giving it up late, but it got away from them, 49-26. Uh, 
A&M beats them in 21, nearly goes to Tuscaloosa and beats them again. And again, this is Bryce Young kind of being Bryce Young. The next weekend, what appeared to be a vulnerable Alabama team took on a red-hot Tennessee team. And uh, give Hendon Hooker a lot of credit, man. You talk about Bryce Young willing Alabama to wins. Tennessee doesn't win this game without Hooker. And there was a time we thought he was injured and not going to be able to do it, and he orchestrates this amazing drive. They win 52-49. Then we go over there and we play them. And uh, even though we got beat 30-6 to and we scored a touchdown in the final game, did and did you ever feel like we were just getting dominated? I mean, so, well, Steve, we're down 30 points. We were. But it never really felt like they just manhandled us. They beat us on some scramble plays. They beat us in some man-to-man coverage. But you just kind of got the sense they were a little bit vulnerable. The next week they go to LSU and they lose 32-31. So really four games in a row where Alabama was not as impressive as they ordinarily were. And, of course, listen, we, we had no chance to win that game. I'm not trying to sit here and say we should have. But the, my point being is that things just weren't what they expected them to be. Fresh off that loss, they had to head to Oxford. A lot of people thought Ole Miss would get them. They didn't. And it went down to the final play of the game. Ole Miss just couldn't complete the comeback. You know, they had a chance there at the end. Didn't work out. They get Austin P 34 nothing the next week, and then they, they get by Auburn 49-27. And I remember thinking, too, the way Auburn was playing at the time, we're like, I, I can't pick Auburn to win this game, but I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't make a game of it. They don't. Alabama wins 49-27. And then you get the Sugar Bowl against Big 12 champion Kansas State. And uh, you want to talk about the difference between the conferences. This is a good illustration here. Kansas State, obviously, a very good team last year. Alabama all over them, 45-20. So they end the year with an 11-2 record. They don't go to Atlanta. Uh, but, you know, and, and what we've seen in years past, when Alabama misses the playoffs, sometimes they don't show up for the ball game. Uh, well, they did. An impressive win over Kansas State. And, uh, again, good job by that coaching staff. What's interesting, too, when I begin to think about this year, uh, Tommy Reese, his offensive coordinator, makes move over from uh, from Notre Dame. So he's a first-year offensive coordinator. Did you realize that five of seven teams in the SEC West have a brand-new offensive coordinator? You wouldn't know that uh, because the SEC media is beating up Mississippi State. Well, things are going to change, you know, because they don't not run in the air raid. I mean, the same air raid that they criticized for three consecutive years. Now we bring in Kevin Barbet to bring more balance and run some air raid passing concepts. Like, well, it's just too much change for State. Well, but five of seven teams in the SEC West have a new offensive coordinator, including Alabama. And you can start running through this, the, the thing, too. Like, Alabama's got a new quarterback and a new offensive coordinator. Auburn, probably going to have a new quarterback and a new offensive coordinator. Arkansas will have KJ and a new offensive coordinator. Texas A&M. You know, they're going to have a new coordinator and a relatively inexperienced quarterback, too, uh, with Wegman, who played a little bit for him last year. So why is it only Mississippi State that gets criticized for that? When five of seven teams in the West have a brand-new offensive coordinator and essentially a brand-new offensive system, why is it just us? All right, the 2023 schedule for Alabama, Middle Tennessee, and then they host Texas. They're at South Florida. They host Ole Miss. They come to Starkville. And then they head to College Station. And you start looking where we're positioned there, and you start thinking, you know, hey, home game, road game, and then you got to go to College Station. Is A&M going to be any good? I think so. 
But A&M has kind of been in Alabama's heads the last two years and won in 21 and arguably should have won last year. And so you start asking yourself, you know, it's Alabama, they're a machine. Maybe, maybe they come in here a little flat. We'll see. Uh, after A&M, they host Arkansas, host Tennessee, host LSU. That's a very, very big stri- uh, streak of games right there. That whole October, month of October, going to be big. The bye week after Tennessee, so they'll have the bye week before LSU, and then it's at Kentucky, and then they host Chattanooga the week before the Iron Bowl. So you start running through this schedule here, and you say, you know what? Alabama's got a good chance to run the table. Then you start thinking, can a first-year starter do that? The quarterback? That's a lot to ask. No matter how talented they are, and yes, they've got a tremendous supporting cast around them. Brand-new offensive coordinator. Brand new starting quarterback. Are they going to be in the playoff? I think they will be. But I think it's right to maybe question that a little bit. I think maybe you look at it and say, you know what? Hmm, I don't know. Texas showed them last year they can play with them. And again, I think if you had a first-year quarterback last year against Texas, you lose that game. Uh, Ole Miss in Tuscaloosa. Listen, Ole Miss has given Alabama some trouble. Um, at times, maybe not so much uh, as they did with Freeze, but, uh, you know, last year's game, again, goes down to one play. And so that could be an interesting game. I I think in the end, if you're Alabama this year, you're very run heavy, right? I mean, that's what you're doing. You're looking to be run heavy. I don't think Ole Miss is going to be strong against a run. I think it also takes – it takes some pressure off uh, quarterback. Maybe it's Ty Simpson. You know, maybe maybe that's who wins. But you know, people talk so much about the uh, you know the freeze wins in fourteen and fifteen. You know, Ole Miss hadn't won since then. You know, last year was the closest they came to winning against Alabama uh, since sixteen. Here are the scores: forty-eight, forty-three. I guess that that's a close one. My mistake. Then it's sixty-six to three, sixty-two to seven, fifty-nine, thirty-one, sixty-three, forty-eight. 42-21, and 30-24. Um, but Alabama's still got to come to play. You know, I mean, you can say what you want to. And we'd love to see Ole Miss get destroyed in that game, but uh, Ole Miss is going to better run football. You know, Quinchon Judkins is a guy from the state of Alabama. I expect him to come out and play hard. I do expect Alabama to win. But you start looking through this schedule here, and you start thinking, you know, they could slip up somewhere. Could it be Texas? Could it be at A&M? Certainly could be against Tennessee. LSU's going to be a really good team, too. You know, the thing that I think about is elite as Alabama is going to be on defense, they're going to have a lot of opportunities on offense. And even though they may not be as explosive as they were with Bryce Young, they'll be good enough. Probably win a lot of games 24 to 10. 31 to 14, games like that. I don't. I just don't think a lot of teams are going to be able to score against Alabama, even though Will Anderson is gone. Uh, that's an important aspect of every bit of this. But, you know, when you start running through this quarterback thing, you know, it's not like they're having to, to uh, you know, get kids out of the student section and say, hey, let's go see if this thing works out for us. But uh, Alabama, obviously, the names change. The results seldom do. And that's the thing I think probably the most important aspect of this is You know, it's not about players. It's about Nick Saban and the system and the process that he's put into play. And so he goes out and finds guys that fit his system, 
and will buy into his culture, and then they go to work. Uh, looking back at last year's numbers, and again, all this is skewed, right? Because you know, Bryce Young was there, an experienced guy that's now a very wealthy young man. But they scored 41 points a game last year. They allowed 18. Let that sink in for a second. Now, of course, there's non-conference games with the exception of Texas. They didn't give up anything. But 18 points, that'll win you a lot of ball games. But this year, if you're not, if you're not averaging 41, there's a chance those games are a lot more competitive. They ran last year for 2,544 yards. I think that's going to go up this year. I do. And, and I, you know, some of that, too, was Bryce. But I think they're going to run a lot more with the running backs. I, I just think I think you have to. Um, your tight ends are always a big thing in that scheme, too, because they like to get downhill on you. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, <laughs> overplaying the end, and he'll slip out there in the flat. Next thing you know, it's a 15, 20-yard game. Uh, total offense last year. Kind of looking at the uh, you know the numbers here, six thousand two hundred and four yards. Will they be that it's explosive this year? I don't think so, but I don't think they have to be. I think this is a team that's going to be very very tough to score on, and a team that can control the clock on you and really kind of shorten the game on you, and just kind of physically pound you out there. Uh, but defensively, they got some dudes back. You know, they had a handful of guys make the All SEC team, and and some of that's just on reputation. You know, some of it's very much on reputation. And I think that's an important aspect of this, too. You know, when you recruit at the level they do, you don't have the – you don't ever really have the end of a talent cycle. Like maybe you do at Mississippi State or Ole Miss. You just don't have that. You know, and of course, Ole Miss has kind of, you know, done some things to try to combat that with the portal. And uh, as, as Lane Kiffin himself said, you know, it's difficult to build a culture that way. It is. And we all – I think most of us saw it that way. I think they're kind of coming around to that. But when you look at the fact that, you know, Alabama's got some guys that feels like they've been there forever. Uh, linebacker depth should be good. Uh, you know, a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, returning talent because all those guys on the two deep are, are really on defense are good enough to play on the first team, you know, somewhere else. I think that's an important aspect of this. You know, I understand the cupboard is always full at Alabama. Uh, former Columbia High School state champion defensive tackle Jaheim Otis is a guy that played last year as a true freshman, had 29 tackles. You know, he's, he's a guy now who's an all-SEC all guy preseason. So, should be a good year for Alabama. Uh, of course, I've got – I picked him to win the West and go on to Atlanta, and many of you do as well. Uh, LSU, a lot of votes, though. So, again, I, I picked the game of the year this year as Alabama and LSU and Tuscaloosa. I think that game could decide probably who goes to the playoff. I mean, when you get down to it, because whoever wins that game is probably going to win the West, unless LSU stumbles along the way. And, again, we talk about this every year. You know, the, the team for the experienced quarterbacks tend to win. And LSU's got Jaden Daniels. You know, what will happen no matter who you pick as a quarterback in that big ball game? You know, can, can you get that guy up for that big moment? Because everybody knows – whether it's Jalen Milrow or Ty Simpson or the you know, kid transferred in from Notre Dame. You know, everybody, and that's Tommy Reese guy. Uh, everybody understands the implications of that ballgame. Jaden Daniels has played in that ballgame. And so it's going to be a very interesting game. And it, it's on the road in Tuscaloosa. That's an important thing to understand, too. A, a lot of these games for Alabama you look at and say, hey, that might be a tougher ballgame. Those games are in Tuscaloosa, with the exception of the, the trip out to A&M. 
but everything else is in your home ballpark. So you feel really good because, you know, again, the Iron Bowl, LSU, Tennessee, Arkansas, Ole Miss, Texas, all those games are in Tuscaloosa. So the games you're most likely to make a mistake in are going to be at home. And it's so tough to play over there. It just is. Because you're not just you know, battling the team and one of the most talented teams in the country every single year. you got to contend with the ghosts of Bear Bryant and the tradition over there and that crowd that is absolutely, you know, relentless. It's not like Tiger Stadium. Don't get me wrong. I think Tiger Stadium is the most imposing home field advantage in the SEC, if not the country. The fans are right there on top of you. Everybody's involved in the ball game. The chances are they've, they've had a, you know, a little sip of bourbon or whatever. That is the best home field advantage in the Southeastern Conference, bar none. Alabama is a little bit sterilized compared to that. But uh, the reality of it is when you go over there to play, you got to usually be maybe two touchdowns better. It's just kind of how it is. You know, you understand that. And that, that's not – I mean, take the officials out of it, right? <laughs> Alabama doesn't make mistakes, and when they do, you gotta make them, you got to make them pay for it. And that's so difficult to do, so difficult to do. So, again, I pick them first. I think they're going to have a great year. And, again, the only thing that even gives me any pause right now and say, you know what, hey, they could win the SEC. I don't think they beat Georgia. And you say, well, Steve, Georgia doesn't have an incumbent starter either. That's true. But Georgia also has the benefit of playing back-to-back national championship games and winning them. And I think Kirby Smart, again, has recruited at the same level as Alabama, so they'll be able to match up. And I think on a neutral field, I think Georgia gets them. I think Georgia, Georgia has some players that can stress those Alabama linebackers that are going to be really, really good. It's going to be really interesting to see. And, of course, there's a lot of football to be played between now and then. But, um, you know, what happens under center at Alabama may determine if they make the playoff or not. And, and you've got to think, if they, if they win the West, they'll, they'll be in the expanded playoff. But you begin to think about all that. You know, you've got a quarterback, and if you don't get that settled and have him play at a high level fairly early in the season, you might drop a game you shouldn't. Then all of a sudden you, you lose that game to LSU or Tennessee and say you limp into Atlanta with two losses and you get smacked by Georgia, well, then you're not a playoff. You know, it's just there's so much to it. There's so much riding on that quarterback battle. But, again, you just really need a game manager, right? I mean, you don't need a Bryce Young or, you know, a Tua. You know, you need somebody to go out there and just kind of manage a game that turn the football over. And, with, you know, with that offensive line, that defense, and the way they can run the football, you don't have to go out there and win with style points. You just got to go out there and win. Because the Alabama mystique sometimes is enough. All right, before we get out of here, let me update you on what I know about the uh, baseball portal stuff. I told you guys last week we didn't expect a decision over the weekend. We didn't get one. I do think we'll get a decision from Luke Holman this week. I think Braden Montgomery may go in the next week. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, I know that there was some uh, some interaction uh, with Braden Montgomery late last week with Mississippi State. Not sure about when a visit will take place. Uh, but we do feel good about where State stands with Braden Montgomery. It's not over. Still work to do. But I wouldn't trade spots with anybody else. Now, uh, the Luke Coleman thing, from what I'm hearing, you know, you never want to count anybody out, but nobody is really talking Tennessee with him. And for some of the reasons we discussed last week. You know, it's like, you know, he's got one year to get this thing right, to be able to go to a place like Duty Noble Field or Alex Box Stadium, where there's a ton of tradition. 
the facilities are already up and running. There's not all this, hey, we're going to do this, and it's not going to happen after you leave stuff. Um, but it's going to be a state LSU thing, barring a surprise. And I, I've talked to multiple people today, and that, that's kind of where it is. And at this point, nobody seems to know. Everybody is expecting a decision this week between those two teams. Now, he could surprise us, but it would be a surprise if it wasn't uh, State or LSU. So we'll see how things progress. Uh, I feel okay about it. I don't, I don't feel nearly as confident as I do about Braden. I think Braden is a Mississippi State lean. I really think it's 50-50 between State and LSU. And a lot of people, oh, I hate getting the last visit. That matters more with high school kids. I mean, guys that are you know, old enough to buy beer, and that sometimes may be a, a bad metaphor, but – they're not going to make the emotional decision. They're not going to get caught up in the moment, perhaps, like um, you know, a high school kid is. And this is a guy that, you know, he is going to be signing a big check this time next year. And so it's about what's best for me this season. What enables me to put myself in a situation to get drafted as high as possible next year? And that's what he's got to figure out. You know, he's met with Nate Yeske. He's met with Justin Parker. He has an ongoing relationship with them. And he's just basically got to decide what's the best opportunity for me. And one thing that I continue to hear is, you know, he's kind of a small-town kid. You know, he's a guy with kind of blue-collar, hard-nosed values and a guy that uh, is not going to go – he's not going to pick LSU because of Mardi Gras, right? If he picks LSU, it's going to be because of Nate Yeski and he believes that's the best thing, right? There are some other people that would pick LSU for Mardi Gras. I mean, they would. They'd want to go, hey, I'm going to go, you know, laissez le bon ton roulé, right? That's what they want to do. Nate, uh, Luke Holman's not that kid. And he may pick Mississippi State because, hey, you know what? This is more like what I'm used to, you know. So that's an important aspect of it. But, again, no update other than the fact that things are as we left them last week, but we do expect uh, Luke Coleman to announce a decision uh, this week. Uh, it might push into the first of next week, but I do. Th- I think it's probably going to happen this week. I, you know, again, ultimately it's his and his family's decision, and they have not given a firm timeline. And I think, honestly – we talk about getting the bump from the visit, and maybe the longer it goes between him and that LSU visit, the better. And a lot of people are like, oh, I hate the, you know, the whole Auburn thing. I kind of like some other people are involved. I do. I think it gives them more to think about. But if Mississippi State gets them, that's huge. Obviously, that, that changes a lot for us. But there are a lot of people, too, and I want to be fair to Luke Coleman. He's not Paul Skeens. Nobody is Paul Skeens. And a lot of people are saying, hey, he's the Paul Skeens this year. That's not true. That's not accurate. That's not fair to the kid. He is a true Friday night starter in the Southeastern Conference, and we need one. But to suggest that this is Paul Skeens, and, and even if he comes to Mississippi State, he's not going to be Paul Skeens. If he goes to LSU, he's not going to be Paul Skeens. And it's not fair to expect that of him. But if he comes in here at Mississippi State as the Friday night guy, and all of a sudden you, you, know, you can move uh, – you know, Carson to Saturday, and then, you know, you've got some options on the weekend. But, you know, the reality of it is I think people need to understand there is no Paul Skeens in the portal this year, and there may never be again. But there's not that guy. And it's unfair that so many people have kind of bestowed all this on Luke Coleman and said, oh, you got to get him, you got to get him, you got to get him. We absolutely need him. There's no doubt about that. But to think that, hey, if he didn't go here and he goes to LSU, it's going to be like Paul Skeens 2.0. It's not. The guy that coached him is not there. And the kid himself is not there. And to Paul Skeen's a generational talent. I'm not in any way trying to excuse any of that. We absolutely need this kid. Make a big difference for us. You, you think about, well, I think we're going to be a good team right now. But all of a sudden you add Luke Holman to the mix. You add Braden Montgomery. I think you go from being a 
pretty good team to potentially being an elite team. That's a big. That's how important these next couple of weeks are. It's that big. A, it may be the difference in hosting or not. It may be the difference in going to Omaha or not. Are we going to be improved next year? I absolutely expect to be. But how improved kind of depends on what's going to happen here in the next seven to ten days. Again, if you haven't done so, go to dogpilethebook.com. Uh, all those URLs go to the same place, dogpilethebook and whenthebottomfalls.com. They all go to the same place. Pre-order the new book and maybe uh, supplement the rest of your collection. If you don't have all my books, you can pick up all of them except for Bloomsville Leander there. You can get that at amazon.com before it goes out of print. And uh, looking for Stark Villains gear, get it at StarkVillains.com. Until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends and enemies and people can see a difference in the way we live. <laughs>